And when you understand how good and how right it is for the creature to praise the creator, for the redeemed to praise the redeemer, for the delivered to praise the deliverer, then you reach out in your heart to praise. And if your heart has no desire to do that, there's something wrong on the inside. You are either out of fellowship with God, your heart is a million miles away, or you've never met the living God. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in Chapter 5 of the Revelation as we continue our study of this largely prophetic book of Scripture. Yesterday, we began a message entitled, The Song Before the Seals, which accurately portrays what is happening in verses 8 through 14. We were introduced to the seven-sealed scroll at the beginning of the chapter, but before we begin unsealing this scroll, Jesus notes through the Apostle John that there is singing and the playing of musical instruments in heaven, and the singing in this particular case is done by the 24 elders and four creatures. But who are these creatures? As we rejoin Pastor Carl, we'll see that they are none other than a particular class of angels. They are in that realm of angelic beings known as cherubim. And cherubim, like angels, can change their appearance at will. An angel can come. We may have an angel. We have angels here this morning. They're in the invisible realm. They're worshiping with us. Our congregation's a lot bigger than you realize because Paul tells us that every time the church worships, angels come and they watch. They're watching us this morning. They're watching you worship. Not only is the Lord God watching, angels are watching. But lay that aside, there could be an angel sitting right next to you. The Bible says you can entertain an angel unaware. You say, that doesn't look like an angel. That looks like a demon to me. <laughs> well, listen, uh, angels can change their form. They can take on human appearance, as can the cherubim. They can change their appearance. God tells us in Ephesians 6 that angels are organized and ranked, and we studied that in Daniel chapter 10. We saw an il- illustration of that. And one of the highest order of angels are the cherubim. We'll study them further when we come to the 15th chapter. The cherubim are those who announce the verdict, among other things they do, of God's judgment. They will actually give the seven bowls to seven angels to distribute judgment on the earth. Now notice, and when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Again, if you were not here for our message in chapter 4, we did a very careful study of the 24 elders, and it's actually very important to the argument for a pre-tribulational rapture. There are some Christians who think we'll be here for the tribulation, and so they have to make these 24 elders some other group of people. They say, well, these 24 elders are 24 angels. No, they are distinguished from angels in the 4th, 5th, 6th, and 7th chapter. Some would say these 24 elders are tribulation saints, people saved during the tribulation. No, in the seventh chapter, they're distinguished from tribulation saints. Every time you see the word saint in the Revelation, don't think church saints. There's two kinds of saints. There's church saints, those saved during the church age from Pentecost to the rapture, and there's tribulation saints, those saved during that seven-year period. Some say, well, these are members of, uh, they represent Israel. No, they don't represent Israel. One of the functions we're going to learn of the great tribulation is to bring the Jewish people to faith. They're going to look on him whom they have pierced. 
They're going to believe that Yeshua Hamasiach is the king, he's the Messiah, he is the savior of the world. They're going to recognize that. That's one of the purposes of the tribulation. No, these are elders of the church, representative of the entire body of Christ. And so the promise that Jesus made, for instance, in Revelation chapter 3, that we as his people would be taken out of that tribulation that would come upon the whole world. There's never, ever, ever been a time in human history, not even in the great world wars, where there's been tribulation on the whole earth. But there is a day that is going to come that is going to encompass every square inch of the planet, every nation on the world. And God promises through His Son that He will remove His people from that time. And so what you find here are these 24 elders who we have seen are clothed in white garments. That's the arraignment that God gives born-again Christians in heaven. They are given crowns. That's the reward that we are given. And they sit on thrones because one of the things that you will do is you will rule and reign with Jesus. So they're representative of those who've come out of the church age. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Before we're done with Revelation, we're going to learn that there are many things that God's people are doing in heaven and will do throughout all of eternity. And one of the things that we will do is we will worship the Lord. You know, when you're born again, when you've been made a new creature in Christ, there's something in your heart that just reaches out and wants to praise the Lord if you're in fellowship with God. Now, you may have come here this morning and you thought, boy, these people are a little excited. They even clapped after, you know, one of the hymns and got, you know. Um, listen, that's what your heart does when you are born again. There's a new proclivity for worship. Listen, when you get to heaven, you can multiply the excitement that you might know in a place like this 10,000 times, 10,000 times, because in your glorified, resurrected body, you will worship God like you have never done before. And so they fall down before the Lamb. What's the first thing you're going to do when you meet Jesus in heaven? Some people think, well, I'll enter in, I'll give him a big hug. Some people think I'll dance before Jesus or I'll give him a high five. You won't do any of those things. You will fall down at his feet and you will worship him. And we will see in a moment that you will not be silent. Praise is about ready to erupt. Notice further the elders representing the body. They are holding, the Bible says, the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp. You say, I knew it. <laughs> That's what's going to happen. We're going to be sitting on clouds in heaven strumming harps. Well, people get that idea, unfortunately, from this verse. But there's no clouds here. In fact, the streets are made out of gold in heaven. And the throne room itself is compared to a sea of glass-like crystal, as we studied in the fourth chapter. So jettison the cloud concept, all right? Not to mention that the Father's house, called also the New Jerusalem, paradise, many names, heaven, it will literally someday come out of heaven, and God is going to place it on a brand new heaven, come down through a new heaven onto a new earth. It becomes the capital city of a brand new planet, Earth, and we'll call the whole ball of wax, I suppose, heaven. 
And so people ask me, do I believe in global warming? Well, I'm not sure I believe in global warming, but I do believe in a global meltdown. Because God tells us this, this current heaven and earth, He's going to burn with fire, going to totally destroy it and make a brand new place. And so notice, here are God's people. They are in heaven, and we're going to see them singing. They're going to sing to the Lord. Now, some of you, it looks like you have locked jaw on Sunday morning. Look, you may not have a good voice. You say, well, you know, I feel like I have a frog in my throat. Well, some of you sound like a frog with a man in your throat. But listen, it doesn't matter. It doesn't say make a good noise, make a joyful noise. You just make the best noise you can make for Jesus. That's a command of Scripture. And not only are they singing, they're playing harps. I had five years of piano lessons, and my parents spent a lot of money, but it's going to pay off someday. I'm going to be able to play, I'm telling you. And so they are singing, and we're going to see that often in Scripture, music is accompanied by harps. Sing to the Lord, Psalm 98.5. Sing to the Lord accompanied by a harp and the sound of music. Now, there are only two instruments that are actually listed in the Revelation, the harp and the trumpet. But I think these are representative instruments of many that are found in the Psalms. Some of you say, well, I want there to be drums. Some of you want guitars, plugged in or not, I don't know. Some of you would say, I'd be happy if all we had there were banjos. Look, the fact is, is that, don't miss the point, the harp and the prayer, the golden bowls, are representative of something very important. Let's read the whole verse. The 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So while the harps and the bowls are literal, we're told that they are symbolic of the prayers of the saints. Many times in Scripture, incense is used to symbolize the prayers of God's people. Put out next to verse 8 in your margin, Psalm 141, 2. Psalm 141, 2. There God says, may my prayer be counted as incense before you. That's what King David prays. May my prayer be counted as incense before you. Now, I should tell you parenthetically that our Roman Catholic expositors like to use this verse as a proof text that the saints in heaven are praying to God on your behalf, that you pray to the saints, and then the saints take their prayers to God. Well, number one, our dear Catholic friends have a distorted view of sainthood. Sainthood, biblically, is not based on merit or miracles that you've done, which you need to have had both to be dictated as a saint. In the Bible, every Christian is deemed a saint. Every born-again child of God, the newest one and the oldest one, the most consistent and the most inconsistent, are called saints, hagioi, saints of God, holy ones. Sainthood is not something that's earned or achieved. It's something that is credited to you by the grace of God. Listen, there's one mediator between God and man, Christ Jesus, so you do not pray to the saints. You don't go to St. Valentine when you need more love, as they do. You don't go to St. Christopher to be safe on the road. And so you'll see many with that little statue on their dashboard as we had growing up as a child. You don't go to St. Anthony if you've lost something and you need help to find it. You don't go to St. Peregrine if you are sick. You go to Jesus, 
the one mediator between God and man. But unfortunately, one popular even evangelical author said, well, this is not Christians on earth praying to the saints in heaven who in turn go to the Father on our behalf. They would say, well, these are the saints in heaven praying for the church below. That's an interesting concept, but it's not a biblical concept. What is happening is here is these are believers. Remember, this is a future event. The church is raptured. You're in this group if you're saved today because you'll be part of the rapture. These are saints who are praying while they are in heaven. They are not saints praying in behalf of someone or on behalf of someone. These are the saints in heaven. You say, well, why are they holding these golden bowls of incense? What is the significance of their prayers? Exactly what are they praying for? Well, the passage is a reminder to me, among other things, that every prayer you've ever uttered will never be forgotten, that God remembers how many of you ever prayed your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If you've ever prayed that, okay. Has it come true? No, it has not. God is yet to answer that. His kingdom has not come to earth where his will is being done on earth as it is in heaven. That is a prayer that will be answered in the future at the second coming of Jesus where Jesus literally reigns and rules upon the earth for a thousand years. God will fulfill. It's illustrated throughout the Old Testament that Messiah will rule on the earth, that the governments will rest on his shoulders. That never happened at his first coming. Yet at his first coming, the angel Gabriel said to Mary, your son will sit on David's throne. But that has never yet happened, but it will happen. And so here are these saints who are recognizing what is taking place in heaven. The title deed to all of creation is being handed to the Son. And He is about to enact judgment upon the world where the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. And so they are no doubt excited. They are praying. They are, they, they are praising the Lord, and we're going to see their loud voices sounded. Look, there are four things, four things that are out of place right now, but are going to be in place ultimately when Jesus consumes the age. Number one, Jesus is not on David's throne. Number two, Israel is not in the land. Israel has never occupied fully the land that God promised to them. The actual boundaries are given to the Israelis. Even the piece of property they have today do not represent the full boundaries. But God is going to fulfill that promise. Satan and his demons who belong in hell are still creating havoc on the earth. And the church who belongs in heaven, we are still here. But these people realize that the Son, who with His own blood purchased the title deed to all of the creation, is about to enact what God had promised for millennia. And so in verse 9 it says, and they sang, notice, a new song. Why a new song? Two reasons. Number one, God commands us to sing a new song. Psalm 96.1, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Now, nothing wrong with the old songs. Obviously, God codified the old songs. It's called the book of Psalms. That sometimes has us sing a psalm. And for millennia, God's people have sung the psalms. But God doesn't want our singing to be limited to old songs. He also wants new songs, I think, one, because there's a freshness 
and our worship that a new song brings where there's a time of personal reflection that from your heart you're able to express back to God in worship. And the word here, new in the Greek, kainain, means something better than the old. And so here is the church in heaven. They are singing a new song because in one sense, absolutely nothing else would do. And when you understand how good and how right it is for the creature to praise the creator, for the redeemed to praise the redeemer, for the delivered to praise the deliverer, then you reach out in your heart to praise. And if your heart has no desire to do that, there's something wrong on the inside. You are either out of fellowship with God, your heart is a million miles away, or you've never met the living God. And heaven will not be a comfortable place for you. That's why lost people don't spend eternity in heaven. We on Sunday mornings very often has a, we have a foretaste of glory divine. So you get excited and it overflows and you're all clapping and you ought to and praise the Lord. You know, if your cup spills over, let it spill. But don't tip it over. Don't get too wild here. But, but if it spills over, that's okay. But there's a lot of new things in Scripture. You're going to be, sing a new song in heaven. You're going to be given, as we studied in the second and third chapters, a new name. We're going to live in the capital city called the New Jerusalem. And the New Jerusalem will literally come down through a new heaven and sit on a brand new earth. And as Revelation 21.5 says, God says, I will make all things new. If you've been abused and mistreated, just know that someday God is going to make everything just. If you've been suffering and afflicted, God is going to make everything right. And if you are tired of this sinful, evil, sin-sick world, someday God is going to obliterate every vestige of sin in this whole universe. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you, underscore the you there. Who is the you? It is the Lamb. This hymn is given to the Lord Jesus. Now, put yourself in the context of someone living in 95 AD when they receive this book. Remember, it's written to seven churches. Like all the books in the New Testament that are written typically for various churches, unless they are a general epistle, they're written for all time. But these seven churches whom we studied, we gave you seven one-hour sermons on them because they were so important. They were under persecution. The emperor Domitian was ruling, and Domitian demanded worship. And every time Domitian came into a room as recorded in secular history, what would they say? They would say, worthy are you, Domitian. Worthy are you. But here these saints read that, and they see this is not said to Domitian, but they are said to the Lord Jesus, to whom alone it can apply. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain. Now, it's interesting to note how the worship has been brought up even to a higher level. In the fourth chapter, they're worshiping the Father for all that He created but now they are worshiping the Lamb who was slain. And by the way, it's the same word that's used of the Father that's used of the Son because indeed they are equal. You know, when a Jehovah's Witness shows up your door and he tries to convince you that he believes what you believe, and they use the same terminology, they just redefine words, you just ask him one simple question, do you worship Jesus? And if they're honest, they'll say, no, we, we don't worship Jesus. Listen, to worship anyone than God 
is absolute blasphemy. You shall worship the Lord thy God in Him only. When Paul, someone tried to worship him, he tore his robes. He said, don't worship me, I'm just a man. When they tried to worship Peter, he tore his robes. He said, don't worship me, I'm just a man. When Jesus is there in the garden, outside of that area where he was raised from the dead, and the two women come and they fall at his feet and they worship him, he receives that worship. And all of heaven is worshiping the lamb upon the throne because to see Jesus is to see the Father. He is equal with the Father. And they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals for you were slain. The word for slain is a particular Greek word that means death by utter violence, by great cruelty. And God had prophesied that that's how Messiah would die a thousand years before Jesus comes to the earth in Psalm 22, 700 years before Jesus incarnates himself in Isaiah 53. He would be pierced through for our iniquity. He died a cruel, horrible death upon a tree, which reminds me, since God wrote about it centuries in advance, prophesied of it in the third chapter of Genesis, that the death of Jesus Christ was not accidental, but it was intentional. Jesus said, I lay down my life so that I might take it up again. No one has taken it from me. I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. But not only was his death intentional, it was redemptive according to this verse. Notice, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men, anthropoi, men and women. The word purchase was used in John's day of a, a man who would redeem or purchase a slave in order to set him free. And that's precisely what Messiah's death did. God purchased us out of the slave market of sin. He wrote our names in the Lamb's Book of Life. He removed us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. And He has now given you a new life so that you can live a new lifestyle. And all of heaven just bursts forth in praise over the precious blood that was slain that we might be forgiven. It was intentional, it was redemptive, but notice also from this verse, it was universal. Let's read further. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. The effects of the atonement is universal. I did not say universalism. There are groups that teach that in the end all will be saved. Evangelical Presses recently put out a book, Love Wins. It was a bestseller for 10 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. Rob Bell wrote it. Willow Creek had him in, gave him a standing ovation. He said, in the end, love wins. Everybody will be saved. No, Jesus said, broad is the gate, wide is the road that leads to destruction, and many are those that are on it. Not everyone will be saved. But please understand, this verse is not teaching universal salvation. False prophets teach that. But unfortunately, true Christians, whom you will meet in heaven someday, teach that Jesus didn't die for everyone, that he died only for the elect. They're called limited redemptionists. They believe in what we call a particular atonement. Sometimes they're called five-point Calvinists, and they're actually more Calvinistic than John Calvin himself was. 
John Calvin was a four-point Calvin. It's not a five. In either case, if you listen carefully, they don't believe you can walk up to anyone and say, someone you've never met before, whom you know is a confirmed unbeliever by their fruit. They deny Jesus. They can't say to them, Jesus loves you and died for you. They don't believe they can say that to anyone. They'll use very carefully couched word, Jesus died and loves those who would repent and believe. In other words, they don't know whether or not Jesus died for you until you truly believe. And so they're very careful in all of their wording. Listen, I want to tell you that he is going to save people from every realm, sinful people in every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. When we came to the Lord's table last Wednesday night, if you were with us, we read 1 Peter 1, you were redeemed. You were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, spotless, the blood of Christ. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ died for sins once for all, the just, that's him, for us, the unjust. Who did Jesus die for? The unjust. My Bible says in the book of Genesis, the intent of man's heart is evil from its youth. Man's heart is not basically good. Don't say, well, he, he has basically a good heart. No, he doesn't. Not from God's perspective. Maybe by the way you measure things. But the way God measures things is different. God measures things from the realm of perfection. And he says man's heart is corrupt. It is intent from its youth on evil, that man's heart, as Jeremiah says, is desperately wicked. My Bible says there is none righteous, not even one. My Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so if you have sinned, you are a sinner. And if you are a sinner, then you are a member of the unjust. And Jesus died for you, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Notice, they're redeemed from every tribe. That refers to families or, or clans. Uh, and so when you go and you preach to some specific tribe that just seems as pagan and as lost as can be, you can go with authority because God promises people from every tribe will be saved. The redeemed are from every tongue. Whatever language of the world they may be speaking, God will save people from every tongue. The redeemed are from every people. That refers to every race in the world. And the redeemed are from every ethnos, every nation, every ethnic body that's united by culture and by common tradition. Can you imagine? Think about John. He's on an isle, island. He's on the Isle of Patmos, the devil's island, so to speak, an alcatraz of sorts. Alcatraz, and he's there on that awful place. The church has been persecuted. All of his beloved fellow apostles are dead. He's the only one alive, and he has to wonder, where is it all going to end? And God raptures him up into heaven, and he sees the glorious fruit of what he and those men started where there are people from every tribe and tongue and nation there in glory. You know how encouraging that had to have been to him. To listen again to today's message, The Song Before the Seals, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. 
You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program REV13. Search the Scriptures is committed to sharing the hope of salvation found only through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. If you can help us in this ministry, please use the Search the Scriptures app or go online at searchthescriptures.org to make either a one-time gift or to come alongside Search the Scriptures on a regular basis. You can also call 877-787-7478 and ask about becoming a foundation partner. Thank you. Join us again tomorrow as we continue our study in the book of Revelation and Search the Scriptures. Search the Scriptures.